I want to preach tonight or, or, or teach a sequel to the sermon I preached this morning. And so I want you to turn again to that passage that I used this morning for a reference in the book of James, chapter 4. And I want us just to look again at the first section of that chapter that deals with judging and criticism. Beginning at verse um, 10, uh, verse 11 of um, chapter 4 of James. I just want to read that again and just, by, just, just for a second mention a couple of things. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. That's the law of love that's found in the second chapter, verse 8. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. It puts you above the law. You set yourself above the law, and you become a judge of it. And he says there's just one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your, bro your neighbor? And we talked about the fact that when we are critical and we have a critical spirit, negative critical spirit, that we assume a position that belongs only to God. And when we judge another, that is, when we pronounce condemnation upon another, we assume a position that belongs only to God. And to do this is to speak against the law of love, and we should be building one another up in love rather than tearing one another down in criticism. But it's a lot easier and a lot more fun to tear one another down in criticism than it is to build one another up in love, and it just, get, it just feels better. And that's why we do it, I guess. Now I want you to turn to the book of Samuel, chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. And we want to look at how to discern without judging. The 16th chapter of Samuel beginning at verse 1. Now, I hope you have your Bibles and that you'll hold them open on your lap there because we're going to refer to them as we go through here. And if you have your worksheet, we'll look first at the historical situation. Just follow me as I read. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. I think we need to stop and, and, and mention parenthetically that I believe that God is always raising up men to lead his nation if we will seek his guidance in it. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Now, he, he knew that Saul was given to temper tantrums, and he being the judge, if he went and selected another who would be king, Saul might kill him, and he's frightened of, about it. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. 
And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Underscore that. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. Now, it is um, probably true that Samuel had an itinerant ministry in Judea. He was judge over the villages of Judea. And he had a kind of an itinerant ministry and he would go from village to village to offer sacrifices and to uh, point out sins in the lives of the people and to call the people to offer sacrifices for their sins. He acted as a religious judge as well. So notice in verse 4, And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Now here comes this old man up the streets of the city, white-haired old man, leading a heifer with a horn of oil on his side. And the people come out and they're frightened, they're trembling when they see him come. Why? Because they know they're guilty of sin in the village. When a person is dimly conscious of his sins, he is fearful of God's messenger and of God. It was when Adam realized that he had sinned against God that all of a sudden, for the first time, he feared him. When men fear God in that cringing that's noted in verse 4, it's because they are dimly conscious of sin in their life. If there were no sin, they'd have no need to fear him. God is not against us. He's for us. Look at verse 5. And he said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, the personal, the individual examination in verse 6. Watch this. Then it came about when they entered. Now, you need to look at that. It came about as soon as they walked in the house that Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. As soon as they walked in the house, immediately he looked at the, at the elder brother, the oldest boy, and he thought to himself, This is the one God will anoint as king. He thought that as soon as he came in the house. And this is why, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. He's just like Saul, really. You know, when they anointed Saul as king, it says that he, was, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And you would think that, that Samuel would, would, would learn his lesson. You know, why a second edition of Saul? Now, who wants another man that's chosen on the basis of his physical appearance, tall, dark, and handsome? And he made that judgment at the beginning. But the Lord said, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart and Samuel got the message. He, he got the word. Now watch what happens when he got the message. Look in verse 8. Then Jesse called Abimadad and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, this is not the one. 
And, and next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chose this one. And he just passed them all by right away. And when, they all, when all seven of them had been passed by, none selected, Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? Now, one time my mother forgot my name. She, she was a very, uh, mother, my mother's a very shy uh, little lady and timid around folks. And uh, we lived way out in the country, and this uh, census taker came. I was two years old, born in 1938. This census ta- taker came, and he was getting the names of the, of the children. I was, the, I was the, the, the baby of the family. And she got right down to my name and forgot it. You know, I guess it's kind of an omen from then on. They, they, they had given me this nickname of Cottonhead. I had blonde hair just like my, my, my kids and, and a few other uh, nicknames. And, and that's all she could think was those nicknames. Now, she knew that wasn't uh, the, the real thing. And, and she's told often how embarrassed she was when the time came. Well... Jesse forgot that he had another son. It's almost incredible. But he's off tending the sheep, and Jesse's forgotten about him. He's so insignificant, he doesn't even remember that this boy belongs to the family. Now watch. And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send him, bring him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. Man, I want you to catch the, the, the drama that's building here. Man, he's getting excited. God has sent me to Jesse's house to anoint a king. All of them have passed by except one. We're not going to sit down until he comes in. This is exciting. And then, so he brought him, and so he sent and brought him in. Now here he comes. The first time we've ever seen David in the Bible. When he comes in, this is what it says about him. Girls, look at this. Now he was ruddy. That means he had auburn or blonde hair. He was a handsome guy. He had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now I want you to think about that, that moment in the life of Samuel and those people there. This is the king. Get the oil and anoint him. This is the one who's going to be the king of Judea. This is the man who's going to lead the people. What a, what a day. And he's handsome and blonde and good-looking with beautiful eyes. Eat your heart out. And, um, and it's kind of unusual for a, for a Jew to be of ruddy complexion light skin and blonde hair. So he was an unusual-looking man, a beautiful, handsome-looking fellow. And they took the oil and they anointed him. Now, in your outline, I want you to begin writing with me at some additional insights. And I think I've got uh, three places here, but there are four, okay? Four places. So A, B, C, and D, additional insights. Number one. Verse 6, Samuel made a double mistake. Verse 6, he made a snap judgment and he made a surface judgment. 
Oh, how guilty I am and are you of snap judgments. As a matter of fact, the first church I ever pastored, I, I started to leave and I, I was talking to my best friend in that church. His, his name is Todd. We named our son after him. I dearly loved that fellow. And I, I was going to talk to him and I was, I, was, I was wanting him to brag on me. So I, was going, I asked him, you know, what can you tell me that will help me in my next pastorate? And I thought he'd say, nothing, son, you're perfect. But he, he did. He said something. He said, I've noticed this about you that may one day be a big problem in church. He said, you're guilty of making snap judgments. He made a snap judgment. He came in on the basis of the first thing he saw, and he made a decision. There was no real consideration of God, and there was no real consideration of God's will or plan and the sequel to what we said this morning is this, that no man has a make right to make his own decision without considering the mind of God. And the second thing he did was he made a surface judgment. He made his decision and his judgment on the basis of what he saw on the surface. And we're as guilty of that as the other. If you're going to be a lover of souls and a leader of folk, leader of men, you're going to have to begin to cultivate the art of looking beyond the surface to the center, beyond what you see on the outside to what might lie beneath the surface on the inside. He made a snap judgment and he made a surface judgment. God doesn't just call tall, dark, handsome folks. He calls sometimes the short, shot and the shapeless. We can't always judge on the basis of what we see. Second additional insight is found in verse 7. It is this. Looking at the heart is against our nature. Looking at the heart is against our nature. The only way we can do that, the only way you and I can look at the heart is to have the eyes of God. The only way you and I will ever be able to see as God sees is to love as God loves. It all depends on what you're looking for. I was talking one time to a person about another and uh, guilty of the sin of criticism. And we were talking about this person. They were just saying some great things about him. I thought we were talking about two different folks. I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing this other person say about the third party. You know the difference? They loved that person and I didn't. The only way you and I will be able to see with God's eye is to, is to think the way God thinks. For it is totally against our nature to look at the heart. We're always guilty of looking at the surface. Third additional insight. Verse 11. People who are often insignificant to man are significant to God. For God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. Paul says it like this, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and he's talking about the gospel that has been entrusted to, to, to the human personality. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. 
And the word there in the Greek means the old crock jar that your mother used to have back up in the cabinet. She never would really put that out on display because it really didn't have, it wasn't really something to look at. It was just something where she stored the food. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's not there by accident. It wasn't placed there because nothing else was available. It was placed there by choice. For you see, God has chosen to build His kingdom upon your, the weakness of man and not upon His strength. You might say, well, God will never use me, can't use me. I'm not smart, I'm not suave, I'm not intelligent, I'm not even spiritual enough. Sometimes my heart is as cold and hard as a stone. What you might consider to be your greatest weakness might be, for God's sake, your greatest strength. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. Those which are insignificant to men are often significant to God. Fourth additional insight is this. It has to do with the first thing we hear about David. Now, has it ever interest, does it interest you at all that all through this passage, God is saying to Samuel, I judge not on the basis of the appearance, but on the basis of the heart. But when David comes in, the first thing we get about him is his appearance. Isn't that strange? Has that ever, has that ever uh, puzzled you just a little bit? Probably hasn't. But we're told not to judge on the basis of the surface. God judges on the basis of the heart. And yet the first thing we learn about David is he's handsome, has beautiful eyes, and ruddy complexion. You know what that says to me? It says that even though the appearance is not the main thing, the appearance is important. Now I need to stop and say a word here to the young, fo young folks, those, uh, those young folks of us. You know, I've had, it, I've had it said to me by many young people, especially during the era when long hair was kind of strange, you know, all they think about, all they look at is, is my long hair, and they judge me on that basis. I have a guy that I counsel with in Fort Worth who, 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 whose appearance just appalled his father, and they just went round and round about it all the time. And that young man had a good point, and he was making a strong point. He was telling me, look, the only thing my father sees when he looks at me is how I'm dressed and how I look. He said, I want him to see me as I am. I want him to see me as an individual, as a person. I want him to accept me for who I am, not what I look like. And so when I sat down with his father, I mentioned that, and I took the son's side to a great extent in that. And I believe that is important, even though the appearance, however, is not the most important thing, your appearance is important. Sometimes the way we dress, the things we wear, and the way we look are absolutely counterproductive to the message we try to preach. Now some practical insights, then we'll quit. When is judging right? When is it right to judge? I want you to flip over, not literally, but in, to, to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, if you will, and, and then Hebrews chapter 5. And you might want to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and put your finger there and hold the place. 
get, get there with me, will you? The seventh chapter of Matthew and the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. I'm reading from the first verse of Matthew 7 and from the 14th verse of Hebrews 5. It's the first verse of Matthew and the last verse of Hebrews. Do not judge. Have you found it already? Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now Jesus was speaking to those who lived in the world of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were very conceited and they were very critical and they judged. And the word means to, to divide or to select for the purpose of declaring a verdict. And innate in the word, now you get, get this please, innate in the word is the idea of non-involvement so that it was a harsh, hard, superior attitude that declares a verdict upon another, but who refused to get involved to improve the problem. Now get that. The Pharisees were harsh and hard and critical, who were looking down their noses at others, and they were finding fault in them, and passing judgment upon them, but they refused to get involved to improve the situation. Now look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When a, when a person tells me that they are mature, this is a good definition of maturity. It's the ability to distinguish between good and evil and then operate and act on the basis of the, of the discernment. The word means to separate or to select on the basis of comparison, and it means careful, intelligent thinking. It's taking time, it is discerning, it is comparing, it is intelligent evaluation. One looks down, judges and condemns. The other compares with intelligent thinking and differentiates between good and evil and responds on the basis of it. Now, when is it right then to judge? There are four areas. I want you to get these, then we're through. There are four areas when it's right to judge, that is, on the basis of the definition of discernment. Number one, when there is prolonged involvement in the life 
of another individual. It is right to judge, it is right to discern when you're about to get involved in a prolonged involvement with somebody else. Now let me give you some areas where that happens in marriage. Now, you may be thinking, I better grab the first one that comes along because nobody else may make it by for me. Folks, marriage involves an irrevocable decision. When you take the step of marriage, young people, you're making a lifelong commitment that is irrevocable. You better think about it a long, long time. A second area where this comes into play is in one's occupation. If you're getting involved in an occupation that's going to, to mean an involvement with others. A third area is with intimate friends. It is so dynamically important who you choose for friends, and I'm not talking just to young people. There's a fourth area, and that is with regard to a business partnership. If you're going into business with a, with a partner, you'd better look at that a long, long time before you do it. It's right to judge on that in that experience, in that area, that basis. Number two, it is right to judge or discern when there are fractures in the body of Christ that need to be healed. Would you look at Galatians chapter 6 with me? When there are fractures in the body of Christ that need to be healed. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 reads like this, Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to himself, lest he too be tempted. That is, realizing this could be me that's having this problem. Now I talked about this morning, in the sequel to this sermon, the games we play. And one of the games we're guilty of playing is, why don't they do something about old so-and-so? I've had people say to me a dozen and one times, when are you going to do something about old so-and-so in the church? When are you going to do? When are they going to do something about him or her? Folks, look, that's not the responsibility of the pastor alone. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. And it's the picture of setting a broken limb. Folks, if you're not willing to get involved in helping one who has gone astray, then you keep quiet about him. Number three, when leadership positions are being determined, it's right to judge. Would you flip to 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verse 22. 1 Timothy 5, 22. And this is what this verse says. 
Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from that sin. Now, in just about three or four weeks, we're going to be ordaining deacons. And we're going to be laying hands as a symbol of setting apart men to lead this church as, deacon, as a deacon. Folks, that's not a popularity contest. And if there was ever a time, ever a need, when we need to discern when there should be some intelligent comparison and intelligent thinking, it's in this area. It's at this place. Far too many times we choose people to lead our church on the basis of surface and popularity. Amen? Amen's have sure gotten quiet all of a sudden. Number four. It is right to judge when you are distinguishing truth. Now I want to get on a soapbox because I'm scratching where it itches. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 1 through 3. Man, what a, what a statement here. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who, who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Then look at this. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godless, godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Now what he's talking about there is that we need to be discerning and judgmental with regard to distinguishing truth. Now watch this. It seems to me that the thing that makes acceptable the messenger is his message. Now I know that the message doesn't count if the messenger is profligate. But I know some folks who reject the, reject the message because they judge the messenger. I know some folks who reject the message because they are critical of the messenger and it's surface criticism and judgment. The thing that is to be discerned is, is the message truth? I'll accept a lot of things on the, from the surface that I don't like if the man's preaching the truth, the word. But if the man is not preaching the truth and the word, I'm going to reject his message first, but I may not reject him. You see, be discerning of the truth of the message. Don't just take everything that comes. Now, when is it right to judge? 
when you're going to get involved in a prolonged involvement, when there are fractures in the body of Christ, when there's leadership position to be filled, when you're distinguishing the truth. Will you join me in prayer? After we've prayed, we'll be dismissed. Now, I don't think it's necessary for us to, to sing a song and to, or to play for you to make some kind of personal evaluation of your life and, and a decision and response on the basis of it. Remember those words in the last verse of the text this morning. For him who knows to do good, does it not to him in his sin? Heavenly Father, help us not to be guilty of judging, evaluating, measuring on the basis of what we see on the surface. Help us, Father, to not have a negative, petty spirit of condemnation, but a spirit of love that seeks to get involved where involvement is needed, seeks to help where help is wanted, needed, that seeks to bind up the broken, the fractures. And then, Father, give us the spirit of discernment that enables us to know where we're to make the commitments of life and what, to what we are to be committed. And I pray that out of this message tonight will grow a discerning spirit of love that we can be like the Savior who died, discerning our sin and getting involved in redemptive work and activity. This is my prayer in His name for His sake. Amen. You're dismissed.